Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Of all the texts on our reading list, the one that I'm guessing the most people have already read is Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed. Since it came out in March 2020, countless women have told me that I have to read this book. And I'm so glad that I finally did. And so glad I added it to the reading list because I often get listeners saying, okay, now we know how patriarchy developed. Now we understand the depth of the problem, but what do we actually do about it in our everyday lives? And that's what this book does really, really well in a very readable, relatable way, probably better than any other book on the reading list. It talks about what we can actually do in our minds, in our relationships, in our daily lives to deconstruct internalized patriarchy. And I'm so excited that I have the brilliant Lane Anderson here to discuss this book with me. Hi, Lane. Hi, Amy. Okay, so before we start talking about the book, let's just really quickly introduce the author, and I'll just say a little bit about Glennon Doyle. She was born in 1976 in Burke, Virginia, and she was raised with one sister, Amanda. And she's written and spoken frequently about her struggles with bulimia, which started at age 10, and addiction to alcohol during her teens and 20s. She also has written a lot about how when she learned she was pregnant, she was living a lifestyle that wasn't healthy for her. She was drinking a ton, but when she learned she was pregnant, she she quit drinking cold turkey and she's been sober ever since, which is awesome because that's so hard to do and I think really admirable. She married her baby's father, Craig Melton, and they had three children. Um, and this is after graduating from college and then working as a teacher. And then she started writing on the blog I mentioned, Momastery, for several years. And that just gained popularity for several years. And then she published her first book, Carry On Warrior, based on some of her most popular blog posts. And that book was published in 2013. Then she wrote Love Warrior in 2016. And then Untamed came out in 2020. And those books chronicle the struggles of her marriage to Craig Melton, among other things. And then in Untamed, she talks about falling in love with the soccer superstar, Abby Wambach, whom she then married. And she now has a podcast with Abby, her wife, and her sister, Amanda, called We Can Do Hard Things. She has a great Instagram account. She's an Oprah-endorsed thought leader and activist who is changing the world, not only with her writing, but also with her charity, which is called Together Rising, which has raised over $20 million for women and children and families in crisis. So she's a very, very impressive woman. And I loved this book. I thought it was so great. I didn't read it for a while after people were recommending it. But when I did, I really loved it. I read it in a day and a half or something because I couldn't put it down. So Let's dive in. Lane, I think you have the first chapter. And like always, we'll just take turns highlighting parts that we thought were really salient and really important to us. So why don't we just dive right in with you, Lane? So she she opens the book with this. She's going to the zoo with her family. And there's this tame cheetah named Tabitha. And you can kind of watch this little show um, where Tabitha has been trained to run after a pink bunny that's strapped to a Jeep. And Tabitha has been raised with a lab, like a Labrador. And so she thinks she's a lab and she'll do whatever the lab does. And so they, they do the first run with the lab and the lab chases the bunny. 
And then she mentioned Lane that it's a stuffed animal bunny, so it's not like cruelty animals. I'm picturing the poor rabbit like an actual rabbit. (laughs) Very, very important distinction. No, no animals are harmed in this in this story. Um, Yes, it's a pink stuffed animal bunny that's strapped (laughs) to the jeep. And so the lab chases and you get to see the lab run. And then, of course, they do it much faster with the cheetah. So you get to see Tabitha, the cheetah, you know, open up to full speed and chase the bunny. And that's kind of the show. And afterwards, I'll, I'll read this part that happens next. So the zookeeper, after the show is over, picked up her megaphone and asked for questions. A young girl, maybe nine years old, raised her hand and asked, isn't Tabitha sad? Doesn't she miss the wild? And the zookeeper said, no, Tabitha was born here. She doesn't know any different. She's never even seen the wild. This is a good life for Tabitha. She's much safer here than she would be out in the wild. And then while the zookeeper kind of keeps on talking, Tish, Glenna Doyle's daughter, points to Tabitha and nudges her mom. And she writes there in that field away from the zookeeper's Tabitha posture had changed. Her head was high and she was stalking the periphery, tracing the boundaries of the fence created back and forth, back and forth, stopping only to stare somewhere beyond the fence. It was like she was remembering something. She looked regal and a little scary. Tish whispered to me, mommy, she turned wild again. I nodded to Tish and kept my eyes on Tabitha as she stalked. I wished I could ask her what's happening inside you right now. I knew what she'd tell me. She'd say something's off about my life. I feel restless and frustrated. I have this hunch that everything was supposed to be more beautiful than this. I imagined fenceless, wide-open savannas. I want to run and hunt and kill. I want to sleep under an ink-black, silent sky filled with stars. It's all so real I can taste it. Then she'd look back at the cage, the only home she's ever known. She'd look at the smiling zookeepers, the bored spectators, and her panting, bouncing, begging best friend, the lab. She'd sigh and say... I should be grateful. I have a good enough life here. It's crazy to long for what doesn't even exist. I'd say, Tabitha, you are not crazy. You are a goddamn cheetah. (laughs) (laughs) And this is sort of the central metaphor for the book, which is she, she goes on to extend this metaphor that this is what's happened to women, that women have become caged. And by expectations, by patriarchy, by conditioning, and the whole book is about figuring how to get free or, as she says, wild. And I actually think what's interesting is the part about how to get over the sense that all we've been given isn't isn't right. We've been given a much smaller space than should be ours, but it's hard to break out of it when you've never known anything else. And this is the central challenge for women, she argues, you know, and one might say the central issue to breaking down patriarchy is to be willing to sort of break out of our cages and own the space that should be ours. Yeah, definitely. That I mean, just being reminded as you were reading that passage, like, I guess I should be grateful for all of this. Like I have this and and I specifically noticed the Labrador, like this friend who loves me and I love Mm this Labrador too. Mm -hmm. And like, they give me food here and I like chasing the pink bunny and I get to run and like, what's wrong with me for kind of stalking the periphery and, and maybe, you know, having kind of a vague sense of what could be Mm -hmm. out there, but if you've never known anything different, it's just, it is really a great metaphor, I think. So. 
So yeah, in a different chapter called Sparks, she describes the cages a little bit. She says the cages are, these are the feelings you're allowed to express. This is how a woman should act. This is the body you must strive for. These are the things you will believe. These are the people you can love. These are the people you should fear. This is the kind of life you're supposed to want. And she argues that this happened to her around 10 to 12 years old, I think she says. And she kind of changed into a different person who sort of started to succumb to these cages and conditioning. And she also says that this is basically what gave her bulimia, right? That Mm -hmm. she thinks trying to squeeze herself into these cages to these like very narrow ideas of what a woman should be is what led to her bulimia when she was young, still a child. Mm-hmm. And also yeah. eventually her alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like physically really did make her sick mentally, psychologically, emotionally made her sick. Right. Okay. The next chapter that we wanted to talk about, but and both of us are going to say, I think a little bit about this is knowing. And this was one of my main takeaways from the book, actually. So Glennon Doyle talks about the period in her life where she had just found out that her husband had been cheating on her pretty constantly since they got married. And she says this, quote, I had just typed these words into my Google search window. What should I do if my husband is a cheater, but also an amazing dad? I stared at that question and thought, well, I have hit some sort of new rock bottom. I've just asked the internet to make the most important and personal decision of my life. Why do I trust everyone else on earth more than I trust myself? Where the hell is my self? And that's in all caps. When did I lose touch with her? So then she describes how, as she's looking at all of the search results, how every entry said something different about what to do if your husband's a cheater, but they're a good dad. And like, and she says, all these differing opinions meant that I quite literally could not please everyone. That was a relief. When a woman finally learns that pleasing the world is impossible, she becomes free to learn how to please herself. I wanted to make my own decision as a free woman from my soul, not my training. But the problem was I didn't know how. So the next parts that we both wanted to talk about are chapters called Imagine and Let It Burn. And they are kind of linked in their content. One part that I loved, and I'll just share it quickly, but this concept of growth and learning, which requires being open to change and and openness to being wrong. She says, quote, if we are truly alive, we are constantly losing who we just were, what we just built, what we just believed, what we just knew to be true. So in the the chapter previous to this, imagine... She writes about how she was an alcoholic bulimic addict who got pregnant and then she reinvented herself and got sober and got a husband and three kids and a writing career. And then she goes on to describe how years later she finds out her husband has been cheating on her, as you mentioned. And shortly after that, a woman she's never seen walks into a room and she instantly falls in love. And then she has to decide if she's going to reinvent herself again. And this is kind of the same idea of, you know, being willing to change. So she describes this process of what am I going to do? She's at this crossroads. Um, She says, I've got one husband, three kids, two dogs, a skyrocketing writing career based partly on my traditional family and Christianity. 
I'm at an event to launch a new book, the highly anticipated memoir about my marriage's redemption. At that event, a woman walks into the room and I fall madly in love with her in the same moment. My circumstances, my fear, my religion, my career, they all scream, no, not her. And yet something inside me whispered, yes, her. That something was my imagination. All evidence to the contrary, I can imagine myself as Abby's partner. I can imagine the kind of love where I was fully seen, known, and cherished. Swelling, pressing, insisting there is a life meant for you that's truer than the one you're living. But in order to have it, you have to forge it yourself. You will have to create on the outside what you are imagining on the inside. Only you can bring it forth, and it will cost you everything. So she goes on to connect this. And by the way, good luck reading this book and not falling in love with Abby Wambach. She's like (laughs) one of the best parts of the book, right? Yeah, Um, so great. And she goes on to connect this personal anecdote about being willing to burn everything down in your own life, even though it seems like you're entering an impossible void and the larger sort of systemic societal implications of that. She goes on to write about what she calls the, quote, seen order of things versus the unseen order of things. And she says, the seen order of things where children are shot in their schools and violence reigns, and 1% of people hoard all that we have, but we know that there is a better, truer, wilder way. And she calls that the unseen order of things. That inside us, the vision for a world where all of our children are fed, And we don't kill each other. And mothers don't have to cross deserts with babies on their backs. It's what a lot of religions or traditions call heaven or shalom or nirvana. But it can be, she says, if we refuse to wait and die and instead, quote, give birth to it here and now and rework the world after our imaginations. She says we must reclaim our place as co-creators of the world and like Tabitha, the cheetah, unleash ourselves to that wilder and truer world. Where we that we sense is out there, even if we can only imagine it. And on first blush, I felt like some of this seems kind of obvious, but I actually think that women, and especially white Christian women who make up a lot of her audience, can have a hard time breaking out of some of the systems that hold them back and that oppress other people because they're afraid of what it will cost them. And it does sometimes cost them. And in many ways, this allows a lot of sick and oppressive things to persist, you know, sort of on our silence or our compliance. And I think she's right that if we as women were willing to burn things down and take on risk, we could actually change lives and change society. But patriarchy and white supremacy have built in so many reasons that we think the cost is too high or that we've just been conditioned not to. So I wanted to read this part from let it burn, which is this same chapter where she kind of talks about how important it is to be willing to burn, you know, burn things down and sort of the impacts of that. So she writes, when we let ourselves feel our inner self transforms, when we act upon our knowing and imagination, our outer world transforms. Living from the worlds within us will change our outer worlds. Here's the rub. Destruction is essential to construction. If we want to build the new, we must be willing to let the old burn. We must be committed to holding on to nothing but the truth. We must decide that if the truth inside us can burn a belief, a family structure, a business, a religion, an industry, it should have become ashes yesterday. 
If we feel, know, and imagine our lives, families, and world become truer versions of themselves eventually. But at first, it's very scary <laughs> because once we feel, know, and dare to imagine more for ourselves, we cannot unfeel, unknow, or unimagine. There's no going back. We are launched into the abyss, the space between the not true enough life we're living and the truer one that exists only inside us. So we say, maybe it's safer to just stay here. Even if it's not true enough, maybe it's good enough. But good enough is what makes people drink too much and snark too much and become bitter and sick and live in quiet desperation until they lie on their deathbed and wonder what kind of life, relationship, family, world might I have created if I'd been braver? And I think I think this kind of speaks to what you were talking about earlier, Amy, in terms of the cost of not. You know, there's the cost of burning the thing down and then there's the cost of not burning the thing down, <laughs> which she argues is a high cost, right? So she goes on to say that, you know, she wants a world full of women who are what she calls full of themselves, right? Um, who are really willing to act on their knowing and be bold and offend people if necessary. Um, and she calls this like our memos, right? We got the memo that we need to please everyone and be, and be pleasing and be quiet and not rock the boat. And she says, no, you know, let it burn. Mm -hmm. I think what I like about this part is she makes the leap from the personal, you know, what it costs us personally to um, not burn things down. But I really like when writers make the leap to the larger systemic issues, you know, how if, mm -hmm. This is also true of not being willing to rock the boat or speak up or sort of speak our knowing, as she calls it. She says, like, you know, we do not need more selfless women. What we need right now is more women who have detoxed themselves to be complete, completely removed from the world's expectations. <laughs> and she means that not in terms of like, because it's good for you, but because that's what would actually change society. Mm. So the next chapter that I really liked is called Eyes. And this one I thought had a couple short quotes that I really liked about mothers and martyrdom, which is kind of connected to the previous, but a little bit different. So she writes, mothers have martyred themselves in their children's names since the beginning of time. We have lived as if she who disappears the most loves the most. We have been conditioned to prove our love by slowly ceasing to exist. What a terrible burden for our children to bear, to know that they are the reason their mother stopped living. What a terrible burden for our daughters to bear, to know that if they choose to become mothers, this will be their fate too. Because if we show them that being a martyr is the highest form of love, that is what they will become. And then she goes on to say, what if a responsible mother is not one who shows her children how to slowly die? but how to stay wildly alive until the day she dies. What if the call of motherhood is not to be a martyr, but to be a model? Hmm. Yeah, I really, I, yes. this felt very freeing to me, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this part was really great too, because it was kind of what we alluded to before, where, you know, she's really agonizing about this choice of whether to end her marriage and, to her children's father, right? And um, make this huge shift for them. And that's what you were talking about, right? Was where like, she's like, oh, what about 
if being a responsible mother is modeling for my kids that I'm not just going to mar- – and that would have been a martyrdom for her to stay with this husband that was yeah. cheating on her that didn't show her love in the way she needed. And she's like, yeah, so she chose to stay alive and and live true to herself, which she that's what she wanted for her kids. So, And that, to me, ties into the next thing we wanted to talk about, which is just a really short excerpt from the chapter on talks – where, I mean, to this issue of like, you have to do what is true to yourself, whatever that means, even if it means disappointing people, even if it means disappointing people you love. So this is a conversation between Glennon and her daughter, Tish. And Tish is saying how her brother, Chase, so Glennon's son, Chase, was talking to Tish about joining this club at middle school. So Tish says, Chase wants me to join the same club he joined in middle school. I don't want to. Me. So don't. Tish. But I don't want to disappoint him. Me. Listen, if every time you're given a choice between disappointing someone else and disappointing yourself, your duty is to disappoint that someone else. Your job throughout your entire life is to disappoint as many people as it takes to avoid disappointing yourself. Tish says, even you? And Glennon Doyle says, especially me. Ah, uh, it's I such a I'm, good quote. So good, right? <laughs> yeah, it's even so as important. you read it, I was like, this is the thing I want to like print out and stick on my mirror, right? Yeah. Yeah, every yeah. time you're given a choice be- between disappointing someone else and disappointing yourself, your duty is to disappoint that someone else, right? That's so mm-hmm. good. Okay, another part that I thought was really important, and I'll talk about just briefly, but it's the chapter Islands, and this is another one that I read it, and Eric happened to be sitting by me as I read it, and I passed it over and said, read this. It it really made an impact for me. Um, and, And this is the part where she talks about the difficulty of feeling judged by her parents when she got divorced and and married Abby. And she says, Quote, it's not the cruel criticism from those who hate us that scares us away from our knowing. It's the quiet concern of those who love us. End quote. And her her parents kept saying things on the phone that weren't mean or anything, but it just showed that they were really worried about her choice and it showed disapproval. And she was deciding whether to let them come over to her house, right? And visit her new family, herself and her spouse and her kids. And so she comes up with this metaphor that her family has an island and they they are the only ones who live on that island and they're happy and safe and they're dancing on the island. And the, you know, the island is in a, a body of water, has a moat around it or something. And, and she's very, very careful about who she lowers the drawbridge for to let onto the island. And so she comes up with a list of very specific behaviors that would qualify a person to be able to come onto the island. So it's essentially just setting boundaries, but it's a really great metaphor for it that really struck uh, really struck me as being really, really useful. And she said, you know, she's very kind and loving. And she told her parents, like, when you can do these things that don't communicate that, like, there's something wrong with us to my children, then you are invited onto the island. And she says, quote, I decided to please myself instead of my parents. I decided to become responsible for my own life, my own joy, my own family. And I decided to do it with love. 
that is when I became an adult. And that really struck me. And then she later talked specifically about kind of an application of our children specifically and not allowing people onto our island who might harm our children. And I thought that this was really especially applicable for parents of LGBTQ children. And she says, quote, a woman becomes a responsible parent when she stops being an obedient daughter, Mm -hmm. when she finally understands, right? (laughs) I totally related to that too. When she finally understands that she is creating something different from what her parents created, you are being required to choose between remaining an obedient daughter and becoming a responsible mother. Choose mother. Your parents had their chance to build their island. Your turn. Um, I thought that was really powerful. Okay, well, one more part of the book Glennon Doyle has two girls and one boy. And she talks about how, you know, later in life, she kind of retrospectively went back and was like, okay, I wasn't, I wasn't really prepared for this, you know, patriarchy that I encountered, but I want to prepare my daughters to live in a patriarchy. And she says, quote, I did not have an alternative narrative as a child. So when the world told me that a real girl is small, quiet, pretty, accommodating, and pleasant, I believed that this was the truth, like truth with a capital T. I breathed in those lies and they made me very sick. Children are either taught by the adults in their lives to see cages and resist them, or they are trained by our culture to surrender to them. Girls born into a patriarchal society become either shrewd or sick. It's one or the other. But then she talks about, so so she talks about how, okay, like I woke up, I prepared to teach my girls better than I was taught, but she wasn't really thinking about how patriarchy would impact her son. So she mm-hmm. she then is watching the news one day and she saw that on the news there was a school shooter saying that he killed three classmates, one of whom was a girl who rejected his advances. And that was like one of the reasons that he committed this horrible violence. And then like in the same TV watching session, she sees members of a lacrosse team who are charged with gang rape. And she sees a college boy who's killed in a hazing accident. And she sees a middle school um, gay boy who committed suicide because of bullying and a war veteran who committed suicide due to PTSD. She's seeing all of these Things happen in the news in a very short time. She says, I stared open-mouthed at the TV and thought, this is what it looks like for boys to try to comply with our culture's directions. They are not allowed to be whole either. Boys are in cages too. Boys who believe that real men are all-powerful will cheat and lie and steal to claim and keep power. Boys who believe that girls exist to validate them will take a woman's rejection as a personal affront to their masculinity. Boys who believe that open, vulnerable connection between men is shameful will violently hate gay boys. Boys who believe that men don't cry will become men who rage. Boys who learn that pain is weakness will die before they will ask for help. When we say girls are nurturing and boys are ambitious... Girls are soft and boys are tough. Girls are emotional and boys are stoic. We are not telling truths. We are sharing beliefs, beliefs that have become mandates. If these statements seem true, it's because everyone has been so well-programmed. Human qualities are not gendered. 
What is gendered is permission to express certain traits. Why? Why would our culture prescribe such strict gender roles? And why would it be so important for our culture to label all tenderness and mercy as feminine? Because disallowing the expression of these qualities is the way the status quo keeps its power. In a culture as imbalanced as ours, in which a few hoard billions while others starve, in which wars are fought for oil, in which children are shot and killed while gun manufacturers and politicians collect the blood money, mercy, humanity, and vulnerability cannot be tolerated. Mercy and empathy are great threats to an unjust society. So how does power squash the expression of these traits? In a misogynistic culture, all that is needed is to label them feminine. Mm. Then we can forever discount them in women and forever shame them out of men. Ta-da! No more messy, world-changing tenderness to deal with. We can continue on without our shared humanity challenging the status quo in any way. And she says, I want my son to keep his humanity. I want him to stay whole. I do not want him to become sick. I want him to be shrewd. I do not want him to surrender to cages he must slowly die inside or kill his way out of. I do not want him to become another unconscious brick that power uses to build fortresses around itself. I want him to know the true story, which is that he is free to be fully human forever. And that's the end of that quote. And I think I'm just going to let it stand there. I thought it was so powerful and beautiful. And wow, that was such a great conversation, Lane. I am so grateful that you joined me today, that we read the book together, that we've reconnected. And I just loved everything you had to say today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Amy. Me too. It was a delight. I really liked the book and it was really fun to get to talk to you about it. <laughs>